Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Wind Gap. There's a murder there. Another one's missing now. Get me a story. I didn't expect you. The house is not up to par for visitors. I'm just in town on business. What kind of person does that? Hurt a child. Doesn't help anything. Riling folks up. You got two mutilated girls on your hands. Someone else is doing the rhyming. I didn't come back to cause any problems. Everything you do comes back on me. Mama says I need to be careful around you. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Sharp Objects, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Sharp Objects. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week we break down the latest episode and occasionally feature interviews with people who worked on the show. This week we will be chatting with actress Eliza Scanlon who plays Emma. Don't be fooled by her Australian accent. That is indeed Emma. You will hear later in this episode. And then at the end of this episode we will be diving into a spoiler section for book readers. Uh, we like to queue up, what is it? Richard, some Tupac and hog noises? Yeah, you know, as the mashup that was always meant to be. <laughs> the mashup that was promised. Uh, you will hear that before you hear any book spoilers for us. So that's your cue to frantically turn off your podcast. And we are serious uh, about spoilers. We <laughs> we will yes. spoil everything. everything whole whole will hog. Be um, what is it? Nose <gasps> to tail. Hog. <laughs> yeah. Nose to tail. Whole hog. Wow. I, I can't believe it took us six episodes, six to, episodes get to get there. Okay. Um, before we get to any of that, we are going to take a spoiler free look at episode six titled Cherry, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée and written by Ariella 
pleasure at Don Kamosh. We only got a, we got a few emails this week. The, the main correction that people wanted to make sure that we registered and we did. And thank you, by the way, for being so nice in your corrections this week, uh, was that we mistakenly said, uh, identified Camille talking in the dressing room, uh, in last week's episode saying, uh, we said you were there at the end is something that she said to her mom, Adora. In fact, she said you weren't there at the end. So that's just a tiny mistake that we made, but otherwise pretty solid good for us us. and then we got a really really very long and very personal email from a listener who wished to remain anonymous i'm not gonna read the whole thing uh because as i said it's very long but i think it sort of uh reflects on one particular scene in this episode episode six cherry so i thought that i would just dip into it a little bit um in the middle uh this listener writes in there's a great Great quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald that talks about the value of being able to hold two opposite ideas in your mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. This is one of those moments. This being um, what the listener is referring to is the way in which Camille thinks about what happened to the woods when she was a teenager with those boys from the football team. Uh, Camille feels what happened in the forest is a choice she made and she's okay with it. Also, it's not something those boys should have done. You have to be able to recognize that two things can be true at the same time, but then it becomes very difficult to talk about. How do you refer to that incident? I honestly don't know. Standing it in one way invalidates the feelings that Camille has and robs her of her agency, but referring to it the way Camille would prefer feels to me like you're letting those boys get away with something they did that was wrong. I don't have an answer here, but I do think the show is being very smart about this by letting detective dick voice his perspective but also by letting camille voice hers visually i think the show is with detective dick the way those four scenes are shot is not a neutral look at that incident but the show doesn't seem to be disagreeing with camille's perspective either it's an incredibly nuanced thing and we live in a world that is leaving less and less room for nuance so i think it's actually very brave what they are doing yeah, thank you to that reader for that email. And I think it was really insightful and, um, really gets at a, a really crucial conversation in this episode, um, that we'll talk about, uh, between Camille and one of the boys who was there. Right. Exactly. So yeah, thank you so much for the email and all the other things that were in it. I really appreciate it. And you can email us still watching pod at gmail.com. I've been accused of saying that too quickly. So let me say it slowly. Still watching pod at gmail.com. Uh, any of your, which you already had before we started this podcast, because you had all that fan fiction you'd written about pod from game of Thrones. Yeah. Pod, my Podrick Payne fan. Fiction. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's just a little uh, back behind the scenes in gossip for you guys. If you want to send me your Podrick Payne uh, fanfic, you can send it to me at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We are always watching pods. Because who knows? Maybe in the future of this podcast, we'll talk about Game of Thrones. You never Ooh, know. Who knows? Mm, you never know. Um, all right. So we we start this episode. We, we hop a little bit back. You know, it's sort of, or it seems to me to maybe be Camille dreaming about running through the woods, trying to find Emma. And as she's running through in her white dress, looking for Emma, in, in Emma's white dress, she sees all the other dead girls in, in their white dresses or nightgowns uh, in the forest. Uh, and to quote uh, Jackie later in the episode, dead girls everywhere. Uh, and then she, you know, she has like a couple dreams and then she wakes up in, in Detective Dick's motel room. She is fully clothed. He is uh, naked as we left them last week. Uh, what do you think of this this opener? Didn't mind that shot. <laughs> I'll tell you that there were worse things to wake up next to. Um, yeah, I thought it's, I mean, I think that like the way that they've pitched this relationship, if we want to call it that, 
um, I think is really subtle where like, he's clearly like, why is she still wearing her clothes? But also had fun and kind of wants her to come back. And she's like, I have all these deep, dark secrets, but she's also like, not like rigid and sort of like completely closed off for him. Like they're interacting the way that people with secrets and curiosities would interact with each other because they still like each other. Um, yeah, I, I like, you know, she's tense. She, she's looking for an insult when he's not insulting her or whatever, you know, when she's like, uh, you know, you're halfway to a question you want to ask. And like, she's, uh, the, the episode bears out that she's kind of right because he does have these questions about her that he doesn't ask her, but she also is digging for questions and accusations where he's just in, uh, you know, in other contexts, just making conversation. And I like that tenseness in her but as you say it's it's sort of softened by like a smile and a kiss from her as well and so like it's not a full shutdown but it's like uh, the sort of tentative uh approach that we would expect from camille who never like sleeps with people yeah you know? and i just want to put on record that if chris Pacina is listening to this and wants to give me a flannel i'll happily take it <laughs> will you eat pasta in bed with chris Messina too no that's too far Okay, <laughs> that's a bullet you guys do. I saved right, that so. for uh, uh, for John Favreau. Thank you. Oh, Favs only. Um, thank you. All right, so then we see Vickery waking up, and we get and we see again his morning routine. Just a little more um, clipped, a little quicker this time. Yeah, but still like the the acknowledgement of the cross, the Patsy like I guess it's Patsy Klein every morning, twenty four seven in in the Vickery household. Uh, his poor suffering wife uh, still making his breakfast, and then we see this. This is like. This is my favorite piece of information we get in this like hugely packed in for, uh, episode full of so much information, which is where Alan sleeps and how he chooses to relax. Uh, Richard, what did you think of Alan's little arrangement? In this big old house, there's not a proper guest bedroom. He has to fold. I guess, I mean, not to say that a fold out couch in a room is not a guest bedroom, but like, you know what I mean? Like an established bed. Um, I, so I was talking to someone, a, a friend of mine about this. I was like, what is with Alan on the pullout? And she was like, well, if he has his own room, that makes it like too real. It makes the arrangement too real. I think like Adora for appearances doesn't want Alan to have fair. his own room. You know what I mean? Yeah. I agree with you. That was my first instinct. And I was like, why is he sleeping in his study when like there's so many houses, uh, rooms in that house? But she was like, Adora would n- does not want people to see Alan have his own room. Uh, the other thing that I'm inferring from this scene is that Alan jerks off to record covers, which is mm-hmm. my favorite thing in the whole world. It's, it's so beautiful. Um, and that, that I have to imagine is like, I have to imagine that Jean-Marc Vallée, cause it's Jean-Marc Vallée's idea for Alan to like have all this music. Like that's, that's, um, Jean-Marc did this great interview, uh, with Alan Sepamol over Rolling Stone this week where he talked about, uh, the three DJs of the show are, Alan, Emma, and uh, Camille uh, via Alice, right? Uh, and so it's his idea for Alan to have all these records. So I have to imagine that it's his idea to be like, mm-hmm. oh, and also, uh, you know, he does other things with his records. So there you go. A little, a little, another little character detail for good old Alan. Good on with his crisp white pants. All right. So then Adora, Adora wakes up to a call and she says, "Don't do a thing till I get there," which we find out what that is later. And then we have this really interesting scene with Camille eating some cherry pie in the kitchen. Like voraciously. What, yeah. What did you think of? I mean, Im- image wise, it was like, it's, it was pretty interesting, you know, in that like it approached gore, you know, and, and the crust approached flesh, you know, um, 
and you think about all the hogs and the processing and bo- dead bodies and you know um it was a, it's a pretty like visceral food to eat on in this world mm-hmm. um but also the the cherry aspect of it comes into play later in a beautiful scene with one of her old cheerleading teammates um and yeah i think that it's interesting that adora says don't let me interrupt your breakfast it's the first i've seen you eat since you've been here and there's something mothering about that you know coming right off of this you know miserable conversation on the porch uh, about how she never loved camille there's there is this kind of i don't know what it is if it's calculated or if it's knee jerk kind of you know tenderness like a care yeah it's it, it's interesting um i also took it as i I don't have any evidence for this and I can't remember any evidence in the text for this, but this, this exchange and then the flashback that she has struck me as like, maybe there's some uh, disordered eating with Camille as well, Mm -hmm. because, you know, she says, this is the first time I've seen you eat. And then Camille has this memory of like, as, as a kid bopping into the kitchen in her like little cheerleader, her first cheerleader uniform, because it's not her like high school cheerleader uniform. So I guess like as a middle school cheerleader and then Marion says something like, you know, don't you, doesn't she look like you just take a bite out of her. And then, um, yeah, and then Adora calls her, uh, you know, a plump, juicy cherry. And then, like, Camille looks, young Camille looks put off by that. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, like, uh, and this is no comment at all on, like, the actress Sophia Lillis or anything like that. Like, to me, Adora definitely seems like the kind of mother who would, like, make a child who is not overweight feel overweight anyway. Uh, oh, the yeah. Way that she would, she would comment on how she looked. And so, her use of, like, plump in that context made me feel like that would give Camille some issues around her body and food around her mother. So, um, that, but that's like something that they just like lightly touch on and they don't dive into. And so either maybe I'm reading too much into it, or it's just something that they decide to sort of just lightly dust over, um, in here. And then you have this like shot of Camille going over the sink and she's hugging Gala, the, that the family made in like the exact same way that Emma did her little like Tupac dance with Adora. Yeah. But like, this is the closest Camille gets to like motherly affection, you know? Really. Yeah. And, and Gala, you know, responds with a, you know, an affectionate kind of pat or arm rub. And, um, it's a sweet moment, but it's a lonely one too, for both women. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, I, I knew a family growing up who had a live in, nanny slash maid for many years and and that's an interesting relationship it's a complicated relationship um you know with a with a kind of really fraught power dynamic um so yeah i thought that was a sweet little moment but also kind of ringed with sadness yeah because there's there it's not quite you know i think I've, you see this sometimes in 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 fiction where i think it's a trope that you have like the rich but distant parents and then the like nanny who's effective, effectively like the mother, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But that's not quite the relationship she has with Gala because Gala still seems like firmly team, a team Adora. She's team chameleon, team Adora. Like she's neutral, I guess is what I would right. say because like she knows that Adora is her employer. And there was that, there's that scene, a flashback in an earlier episode where like Gala is in Adora's room and like Adora kisses gala like gives her a kiss like offers her way more affection than she ever offered her own daughter camille and like so gala is like allowed in the inner sanctum allowed this sort of stuff and i don't i think 
you know, given her preference, Gala would choose Camille over Adora, but she also like is cognizant of who pays her. So it's yeah, this great. isn't the help, unfortunately. It's not you know right, so, right. Like Hilly Holbrook getting told off. Um, yeah, so it's I mean, and I think that you know, a, a not, yet another example of this show presented with an obvious character dynamic and then going a different direction, a more subtle direction. Yeah, yeah, so, like holding multiple truths at once. Mm-hmm. Um, then we get this scene with Emma and uh, Camille in Emma's room, and Emma is like sort of joking about cutting, uh, which is not funny, my friend. And you know, just sort of is off to do teenage substance uh, abuse things, and Camille sort of cautioning her. Um, did anything strike you about this exchange? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, again, with this sort of, this protectiveness, like, like, there are a couple moments in this episode, but there's this moment, and then there's Camille talking to Emma about the drinking, where she's like, you know, you've been, you know, after last night, you should take it easy. I mean, you know, far be it for, for you to take advice from me about partying or whatever, where Camille has this kind of self-awareness about herself, obviously, that's almost like she uses it in a friendly kind of nurturing way. And yet clearly, interiorly, sort of loathes herself and loathes the, the things that are problems with herself, you know. So I just find it interesting how she's able to outwardly, um, almost like, you know, not benefit from these experiences, but, but sort of like turn them into, into good things in terms of like extending care to other people. And yet yeah. cannot, cannot do that to herself at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was interested by the, um, by this, uh, I haven't taken like a really close look at Emma's room yet. Um, but I was, uh, you know, I talked to Eliza for this episode, the actress who plays Emma. But in another interview I read, she talked about how like she came from uh, the world of Australian soaps and came directly to this like prestige HBO drama. And she's like, I'm used to the sets where like the bed is just like a comforter over like a cardboard box basically uh she's like but this is so detailed and so um i don't know it's just like emma has all this stuff in her room that um you know the more obsessive watchers might want to like take a closer look at some of the Mm -hmm. what what emma gathers around herself um and then we get okay first of uh, a couple scenes with still my favorite character. Yeah. Um a, a wild Jackie appears down an alleyway. I uh this is not a scene in the book so I wasn't like sure who it was for a split second then I was like oh no that's a that's a caftan I spy in the distance. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely caftan Jackie. in the alleyway. <laughs> the uh, the Jackie story. Um yeah and she's tossing Either old flowers or or just tossing the roses um, that are at the site where Natalie Keene's body is found and, and replacing them with daisies. It seems like and um, I d- is, like does that strike you as a as a fun fine thing to do in this town? What do you think of? Jack yeah, I mean, I, I think that well, she she said why she did it because. Mm-hmm. There's something more girlish and, and young, youthful about a daisy, you know, and also the, the roses are so closely associated with Adora and like, you know, I thought it was, and, and I think it doesn't Dick say like, that's a nice thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, I think that Jackie reveals multiple shades of herself in this episode. Um, here is a sort of, you know, this kind of almost like ghostly image of, of Jackie, like moving through town in her billowy caftan, like fixing things and like changing things. Um, but then later in the episode, we see a little bit of a, a more weather beaten kind of darker side of her. 
Right. And this is sober Jackie, this sober light of day Jackie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also says, um, he, see, and then I get disappointed in Detective Dick, right? Because like, so in last week's episode, Adora brings him into the house and she definitely tries to like plant some like seeds of doubt in him about Camille. And she talks, she drops these hints about Camille and says she's fragile. And then he walks out of there and Camille's like so freaked out. And she's like, what did she tell you? And he's like, oh, I know so much about that floor, you know? And then you're like, yeah, Dick, yeah, you're on her team. It's great. And then he lets Adora's work work on him in this episode. Yeah. And he starts as- asking questions about Camille, starting with Jackie. And like, I think Jackie also looks disappointed in him. And, um, she doesn't you know. discourage him exactly, but she does seem like, Oh, like that's who you are, you know? Yeah, not exactly. But later she says, uh, don't believe everything you hear. Right. Something that she says later. So right. I think that, you know, that she's, but like Jackie, there's that great shot in last week's episode where, we see Jackie see Adora take Dick into the house. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, just, I'm just convinced Jackie knows every single little thing, everything. Um, and she's, you know, to that vein, she says, you're getting warmer detective when he's asking about, uh, you know, Camille and Adora and all of that. So, uh, what that means we will leave for the spoiler section and, um, I will end by saying I am extremely disappointed in Dick for calling his colleague and asking him to run a background check on Camille, basically. Um, Yet another reason to be disappointed in Dick. <laughs> There's something that um, Messina said, uh, Chris Messina said in uh, last week's episode when I was talking to him, he says, um, he says something about uh starts to investigate Camille. And I actually didn't quite know what he meant at the time, uh, because it's not quite a book thing that happens. And so, uh, I was like, Oh, when this episode, I was like, Oh, I understand what he meant. I thought he meant sort of like emotionally, but he meant like literally call it a background check on her. So, um, that's not a, a, a delightful thing. And then we get, so then we, we hop over the farm and they're pulling this bike out of the muck on the hog farm. And, the gang's all here. And by the gang, I mean Bob Nash, uh, Vickery, uh, Detective Dick, and Adora. Uh, what did you think of? Oh, this pretty. Cr- oh, I didn't realize that it was pig shit, which we find out later. I thought it was. Yeah. I thought it was just mud. Yeah. And then no, it's not. Um, but yeah, certainly like the most concrete thing for the present tense case at hand that we've gotten in a while, right? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a huge piece of evidence, I would say. Yeah. And, um, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm super curious about it. What I think is an interesting detail, you know, Bob, Bob says he could identify the bike by the flowers on the seat. And I think they were daisies if my eyes did not deceive me. And that, um, that's okay. And that, um, so that means, um, you know, that Jackie was right about little girls and their fondness for right. disease. So, um, or Jackie's the killer or Jackie is the killer. Um, but yeah, I, I like this scene and I like, you know, what we figure out from the scene is that, you know, the call that Adora got was like, I guess, I don't know. We see some handlebars sticking out of the pig shit or something like yeah. that and she's like cool don't do anything till i get there and then then we realize that this is why she didn't want camille with her and all this sort of stuff as she was sort of trying to control and manage the whole situation and she later refers to it as a business matter you right. know which yes because it technically is on her business's property 
but like it's a murder investigation of a teenage girl like i feel like it that's it's pretty cold language to describe what that is yeah and i, I mean i don't know that um I, I can't see any way in which adora would let camille come with her yeah but i guess she could have been more honest about why she doesn't want her with her yeah. um it's also interesting what uh, Adora decided to wear to, like, you know, dredge the picture, which is, like, these cream pants. They're not as white as Alan's crisp white pants, but mm. they are, like, very deeply impractical for for pulling a bike out of the muck. So, there you go. Uh, and then Dick, you know, everyone on the case wants employment records for all the hog farm employees. And then we cut to uh, John at at the pool. And this whole scene with, um, Emma and her girls. And, uh, this is something that like maybe isn't as clear in the show or whatever, but like, yeah. So Ashley and Emma's friend Jodes, shut the fuck up, Jodes, are sisters. So Emma is over hanging out there and John is like staying in their pool house. Yeah. Despite the continued antagonism and or antagonizing of John by these girls, they still have access to like his world. I mean, obviously, because yeah. it's a small town, but because of the Jodes connection, which is a great 70s thriller starring Gene Hackman, uh, if you... <laughs> or at least it should have been. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so, Emma, the girls, John are all hanging out by the pool, and, like, I gotta admit that John is saying some, like, I mean, Emma is being, uh, intentionally provocative in every sense of the word. Uh, she's giving some hardcore Lolita vibes. And, like, what I will say about this interaction is like, I watched this episode multiple times and watching this pool scene after watching the scene at the end where Emma talks about like, boys are easy. You just like, you know, the only, the way to interact with boys is sexual control. Um, that helps this, that illuminates this pool scene for me. Um, that thing she says at the end, but like the way in which John is talking to her is like super weird. He's like, um, you know, he'll say, he says, it'll be your day soon and all this sort of weird, ominous shit. So, um, yeah. yeah and, and like we see him with his shirt off and he's, he's, there's a, he has a tattoo and he's smoking a cigarette. It's like kind of a different angle on yeah. him than we've seen before. You know, there's a menace to it. Um, that like he previously was this kind of brooding, sorrowful, mourning kid. And now he had, he had a different bearing about him. Um, and I have to say like this scene, uh, I've seen it twice now. This scene is so beautifully staged in terms of the blocking and, uh, that the sound work is incredible with, with, you know, the, the, the cicadas and the, 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 the slight murmur of the pool and just the feeling of the heat in the air and that sexual charge that like, you know, is a part of teenage summer, you know, it was kind of illicit. It's kind of grungy. Um, I just thought this scene was so beautifully done. I mean, the whole episode is, the whole show is, but like this episode, this scene for me, like was a really perfect example of the, the subtle, but really complicated stuff that Valet, um, is doing. Yeah. The sound design is amazing. He, um, in that uh, interview with Alan Seppenwall, uh, on Rolling Stone, he talked about how they like, they captured the place, mm, the time in the shooting that they captured the best bug noises. <laughs> You know, the best bug noises was yeah. episode four, the first scene where like, uh, Camille is rooting around in the grass for the iPhone that she threw. Uh, and he was like, we got, the, he was like, we got the perfect bug noises. He's like, and then we just use that as the background track for the rest of the show. And we just like turned it up full blast sometimes or turned it down or whatever it was. But like those cicadas are yeah. just going the whole time. Yeah. And just that feeling of like a baking, 
summer afternoon by like a pool, like all that concrete or, you know, whatever it is surrounding the pool and, and, and just that, that charge in the air. Um, that's kind of sleazy, but like really alluring. Like I just, um, something about it really clicked for me and I really got where these kids yeah, were. And it, like you could practically smell the chlorine is what I would say. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, so there's yeah. a shot in this scene, you know, cause like, uh, Camille rolls up, she's listening to John be like super weird to her sister. She's listening to her sister being absolutely terrible as per usual. Um, and then there's this like closing moment where, um, Emma dips her head down into the pool and like it to me it felt reflective of in the first episode we see young Camille sort of dip her head into the lake that she's swimming yeah. in but I I, I mean I, I'm trying to not do that thing where I spoil her own interview but I did ask Eliza Scanlon about this and she said because that shot was used in all the trailers and I really liked it and she said that uh that Jean-Marc Vallée wanted it to be her Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now moment. And I was like, well, I love that. So, um, that's, yeah, that's Martin Sheen in the, in the, in the like, you know, mucky waters of Vietnam, uh, you know, moment for this beautiful blonde teenage girl. So, mm-hmm. um, and then we get, I love, you know, Christmas Eve in the interview last week talked about like how much work the actors have to do as background, um, just for other people's shots. And I was thinking about that in this scene where Ashley is talking to Camille, uh, you know, our fave Ashley is back. She's the best. Um, mm-hmm. and the girls still have to just be like sitting poolside in soft focus in the background behind Camille while she's talking. And I was just like, those girls just had to sit out there in the sun while she did this. And I, and I bet you it was the real girls and not some stand-ins and, uh, Anyway. Yeah, well, commitment to I the guess cause. So. Yeah, I guess sitting poolside is not the worst thing that you could do for your job. But anyway, uh, I love this exchange where Ashley is completely lying and Camille gives her this like great look. Amy Adams just like, it's this like, fuck you smile. <laughs> it's like, yeah, great. Great. Thanks for bringing me out here and wasting my time. Uh, cause Ashley is like, Oh, you know, God plucked angels from Wind Gap and they were just the best girls. And Camille's like, Uh, no, I know that they were holy terrors. So what are you saying? Um, what did you think of this little bit of, uh, journalistic, uh, integrity from Camille? Yeah. I liked, I liked Camille, like not suffering any bullshit from Ashley. Um, this is a tiny little inside baseball detail, but I love that they included the little beep of her turning on and off the recorder. (laughs) Uh, you and I, as people who use those a lot to interview people, there is a, I had like a kind of, not in a great way, Pavlovian response to that sound of like, oh my God, I'm at work or like I'm at, you know, I'm in a scary interview or something. Um, and yeah, Amy Adams, so good. Like just that, that turn, that sort of shift. But then you know, Camille waits a beat or half a beat because she knows that Ashley will scramble and, and come up with something approaching yeah. real to, to like stay in the moment. And she does sort of, I mean, she offers a little bit more of a window into John's character. Yeah. This idea of like whoever in Ashley's view, whoever the killer is, they're doing it for popularity. Um, so, but that's such an Ashley it thing. It really is classic Ash. Uh, classic Ash. <laughs> we also see, her turn her head and it looks like she's got a little chunk taken out of her ear, which is a, a grisly little sight. Um, I also had a Pavlovian response to the sound of the recorder, but for me, it's that, I don't know if you feel this way, but I'm always, whenever I use the recorder, I'm always paranoid that it's going to like stop recording in the middle of the conversation. I'm always, yes, cause it's happened yeah. to me. <laughs> it happens not all the time, but it happens. And when it happens, it's so bad. And so you're just always like, I'm always just like gl- darting a glance down to make sure it's still recording and stuff like that. 
that. So the sound of the beep, I was like, ah, is it? Ah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Is she going to say something while the recorder's off? Oh no. Um, anyway, so, um, and then, you know, Ashley asks if Camille, um, misses being a cheerleader and we get this flashback to Camille with, with the cheer squad around her. And I really like that, you know, we'll get the grown up cheerleaders later, but I really like that they introduce this here so that it's not just like she's triggered by the grown up cheerleaders. She's triggered actually by Ashley to remember it, which I think is kind of fun, but she's like, you know, Ashley has this whole thing of like, this is what I envisioned for you. You'd have a beautiful house and an I banker husband. And I think she says like a couple curly tops running around. Uh, yeah. And Camille's like, yeah, no thanks. Um, but uh, she is this really interesting scene that she flashes back to where uh, this character named Becca, um, is massaging like a cramp out of her leg. And we find out later that Becca like notices, uh, you know, a cut on the back of Camille's leg and blood is trickling down. Um, before we find out what it actually is, like just that, that memory taking it on its, its surface, which could be like, Oh, someone got their period. A, a teenage girl got her period when she didn't want or expect it. That's a mortifying memory that a lot of teenage girls have. Uh, we know that there's like something. Yeah. I, I, play, it, most. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what we see it most famously in that um, 70s teen comedy, Carrie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what a blast. Sissy Spacek. Comedy yeah. phenom, Sissy Spacek. Uh, what yeah, a good yeah. time. Um, that's so funny. I should I, sh- I should think about um, Carrie's mom and Adora more closely. Um, what well, those yeah. two women could do. The- um, I think that something interesting about this scene, this flashback, and then what comes later in the episode is... You know, the Becca presence, um, and in that, in that, we, I, I, we might, a viewer might sort of like subtextually be like, oh, it's interesting that the one black girl on the team is the one kind of doing the massaging. Okay. And then move on. But then the show, because Valet never forgets and the writers never forget anything, of course it comes back up later in the episode. Um, and I think it, this is kind of really the first time the show has grappled with race beyond the, obviously the civil war stuff, but like actually in the immediate sort of present day or in, and, you know, recent past, um, it's another sort of interesting variable to bring into the town and particularly how the young people in the town socialize. I'm so glad you brought this up because, um, you know, we, we, we had these, like, we've had these, um, the Confederate flag imagery. We've had this discussion uh, on this podcast about whether or not Missouri actually is the South. We had like great emails about it and stuff like that. Um, the character that, you know, this character of Becca is not quite the same in the book. And there is a character that Camille sort of bonds with at this, uh, you know, girls night that she goes to, but it's not a woman of color. And so like the fact that they made her, her, they made her otherness, uh, be, be, I would say because she's a woman of color. I think that's the implication in this episode that she was treated differently because of that way. You know, Camille's like, we treated you like shit. And there's like, seems to be a reason why, um, she's really like shit. I think it's, uh, it's not the show grappling with race, um, on the large scale, but it is the show, uh, you know, getting into it in a way that the book doesn't. And I think that that's really interesting. So yeah. And I think. I think also it's a good reminder and, um, the actress who plays her, Hillary Ward, who she plays Becca as an adult, it does, does this beautifully in her, in her few scenes in the episode. 
it's a reminder that, you know, while Camille has got her shit, she's by no means the only person who this town is sort of working, conspiring to, to smother. You know, and, and to, in, in subtle ways, in profound ways, you know, there are other people in the town suffering. It might be hard, I guess, in a way for Camille to see that. I mean, obviously the two murdered girls suffered, but like, you know, watching the show can, can very much be the sort of like Camille versus the world thing. Um, or Camille at least versus Wind Gap. Um, but other people, you know, um, are harmed by its mechanisms too. Right. And the, and the way in which that Camille feels like such an other and such an outsider, but like, in fact, has a golden ticket to the town because she still is like Adora's daughter and beautiful and like all this other, all, all these other things that the town prizes. And the way in which she is an outsider is self-inflicted in a way. And, and that's not like, to say it's bad because like I would prefer to be an outsider. I would prefer to not be comfortable in wing gap, but like that it is something that Camille has a path. She's chosen for herself where some people don't even have that choice. They're just othered anyway, you know? So, yeah. Um, so before we get to like, you know, the, the more stuff about grown up Becca, we've got a great, great, Adora on the porch moment um, where like after Dick has called Camille suggests they have uh, pasta in bed, which as you said, is something you would only do with John Favreau. Um, then he tells her that, Oh yeah, we found the bike. Thanks to your mom. And Camille is pissed because she feels like her mom kept her outside of this scoop and she comes home. She parks her Volvo a little bit too much on the lawn and like one oh tire, God, it's, like a little like, bit. Yeah. Um, not even the lawn is safe for her. <laughs> such a good line and then alan's like should we say something and she goes why cause a scene i mean it's just like pearls diamonds and pearls and gems are falling from patricia clarkson's mouth as she's doing this scene it's so good um you know and then uh she comes up and she's she's sort of confronting adora and adora gives this like just are you interviewing me like reaction? And it's just, uh, it's so good. And then, you know, Camille storms in and Adora, you know, basically says she's outstanding or welcome. And Alan's like, you've been more than tolerant. And she goes, tell her how you feel about it. Like, it's just all, mm-hmm. um, these, these beautiful strings that Adora is pulling. And, uh, meanwhile, her, her nails, which are blood red are just like sort of glinting like talons in the sun. And it's just, I, this is one of my favorite scenes in an episode that's just like full of so many good scenes. What did you think of all of this? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a really, it's another, yet another funny, uh, but also, you know, grim look at the way that she runs her household. Um, and also we knew this was coming. We knew that it's eventually Adora was going to be like, we got to get her out of here, you right. know? Um, and, uh, so here it is. Well, the beginnings of it anyway. Um, and it's just imagine, imagine your mom saying that, you know, or, you know, a loved one saying that about you. Like, like, I think they've overseen their welcome. They should go, you know? Um, it's, uh, you know, she really, she's really a, t- a tough, a tough case. Um, my friend that I did watch this episode with, she's a, she like, um, uh, as I am, as you are, is like a big Game of Thrones fan. And she was like, oh, this is like Cersei's, the scene that Cersei has. And I think it's like season four or five. I can't remember where she says, um, 
little finger i think says to her like knowledge is power and she goes no power is power and like all of her guards just like step forward and like she's like oh my friend was like oh this is this is like her power is power moment where she just like activates alan she's like tell her how you feel about it alan like go go do my dirty work doesn't necessarily work out for her but like that's that's her intention so um and then we get you know some more invasive detecting from dick uh as he goes to the hospital where Camille, uh, the rehab center where Camille checked in. And, uh, I don't know if you had the same reaction I did. Like he walks in, it's the same, I guess there's only like one nurse whoever works at that front desk and she's there. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's actually, it's actually triplets. They all got a job. It's like like a hot fuzz. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, so you know where he is. He's at the facility where Camille was and that is so invasive. And then he goes to like talk to physician there about the mindset of someone who would check themselves in there. And it's just all, all bad moves from Dick and, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And obviously he knows because I think she wasn't there that she didn't commit these crimes that he's investigating. Right. But like, as he said earlier, like he really thinks that she has something to do with them. Um, and it's, creepy the way that he can both but i think be pretty earnest about pasta in bed but then also be doing this stuff on the side i mean camille i guess is much the same way it's but not- it's just interesting that they're both playing each other while also falling for each other which is not an unfamiliar dynamic in detective stories but <laughs> this show does it a bit it's true i'm not convinced that he like definitely believes that she has something to do with it i think he's like just in case she does or something. You know what I mean? Like, because, uh, Vickery keeps warning him about her and, and Adora warns him about her. And so he's like, okay, to protect myself, maybe I should find out about her. But I also think it's just sort of like, it's like the extreme version of like, uh, digging through someone's Facebook profile when you first start dating them. You know what I mean? To like find out as much information, you know, not that I've ever done that, uh, to find out as much information as possible about them. It's just a terrible abuse of power as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then we have, uh, Camille listening to the Ashley tape. So this is something, I think this is the last time I'll bring up this Alan Zuppenwall interview, but this is something that Jean-Marc Vallée said to Alan Zuppenwall that I, um, that I think I must have processed, but maybe not fully, which is that every time they cut to the past, you still hear the present, um, and I, so you're listening to the present while you're in the past. So even when it's like, even when there's like flashbacks to dialogue, you still hear whatever it is Camille is doing in the present, in the background of the sound mix. Um, which is some, yeah, something that I just hadn't really fully latched onto until you have this great shot of like, you see Ashley talking, but what you hear is the tape that Camille is listening to. It's very eerie and really effective. And I really liked it. What did you, what did you think of that? Yeah. No, I, I, I think that I, again, I think that, you know, I, I, I was, I was hip to it before, but like something about this particular episode just really drove home that like, I think that Valet is doing a, a brilliant job. Like, I think this is like top level work, like, and it's good because it's so thought through in every tiny, tiny detail. Um, and yet manages to seem not overly mannered and, and just like really fluid. And I think it's some of the best depictions of, of, of kind of waking dreams and, and like sort of, you know, daydream reverie kind of, um, memory stuff that I've ever seen. Like, it's yeah. just, it, 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 it mimics the rhythms of that and, and the kind of levels uh, the kind of drift between past and present, like so well in such an inventive, you know, cinematic way. Um, that, yeah, it's just really stunning. Um, we get this 
curry call in this episode that is um that made me laugh another like journalism moment when she's like can you even like use your family as a source and curry's like they're called anonymous sources and i was like <laughs> yeah yeah um i yeah and we get uh curry's wife on the phone and stuff like that and it's just it, you know it's it underlines i guess that camille still doesn't know that curry's sick uh, that he's home from work, but he won't tell her why. And, um, you know, and that his wife has a sort of motherly concern for Camille as well. So, uh, and then in contrast, we get Alan <laughs> talking to Camille. Now, so this is a, there's a very similar scene in the book, uh, without the lead up that we get in the show of like, uh, Adora telling Alan he needs to tell Camille to leave. It's just, Alan telling Camille to leave in the book. And it always like really stood out to me as very odd. So I'm glad we have this other like, um, packaging around it. I, and I also couldn't reconcile knowing that that scene happened in the book, Alan telling Camille, like she's making her mother sick and she has to go with the Alan that we meet in the show who like got a birthday cake for young Camille and stuff like that. And like makes these sort of feeble attempts to be some kind of half-assed father to her. And so, um, I, I think it, it's just positions Alan is super weak, unwilling to take a stand on either side, uh, which we already knew about him. But, um, I really like, uh, Amy Adams whole body language for this, where she's just like leaning over the railing and kind of barely looking at him as he's like lobbing all this shit at her. Uh, what did you think of this? Yeah, it's, an, I mean, it's, it's crazy seeing him, you know, cause he's been this kind of like passive sort of like, you know, help meet to Adora and, and, and he still is being that, but like, he's a fucking asshole too. And you'd have to be, I guess, to tolerate it. And this thing about standing over the house, like a witch and like, like it's, he's got some poetry to him, (laughs) but like, but it's in service of like, just towing, like carrying water for, for Adora who is made, you know, we don't know the full extent to it really, but like we've, we were six episodes and we've grappled, we, we've, we've um, figured out that like Adora was, a big part of the reason why Camille is the way she is, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, for him to just, and he's known her since she was little. I don't know. It's, it's, it, um, it actually made me appreciate more the, uh, the goofier aspects of Alan, because I kind of almost feel like it was the show setting us up to think he was sort of harmless, but of course he's a, he's an enabler and, you know, is complicit. And, um, here he is kind of, uh, enacting that complicity, uh, in a much, in a more active way. Yeah. I think that, um, whenever you have an abusive mother figure like that, like you can't have that abusive mother figure without a complicit father figure. I mean, presuming heteronormativity in like a two parent household and all that sort of stuff. Like the abusive mother trope is, is so frequently explored, but this like passive complicit father trope. Um, I think it's, I think it's really good that the show has room for that as well with Alan. So, um, and, and this, this mention of like, I mean, him choosing, um, him choosing his own comfort, right? It's more comfort, like his life will be easier if Adora is happy. So this is an act of self comfort. Um, I will do this and, and, and further hurt this child and further hurt her. I I know she's a grown person, but like she's his child in a way, like, and, and say really toxic thing about like, oh, you're just like your grandmother, you know, and like, and and then it's so funny because usually that terrible insult is like, you're just like your mother. Right. But like, he can't do that. So he's like, you're just like your grandmother who was a terrible person and would like pinch babies and stuff like that. Um, 
yeah, is all about his own comfort. And it's just, it's pretty monstrous in its own right. So, uh, but then like the mood is sharply lightened by the entrance of Angie. Um, Angie and the other like grown up cheerleaders are all their own venomous things, but like at least Angie comes with like a center console that has bourbon in it. Like the whole everything with the bourbon yep. delightful. Like Angie travels with bourbon, has a whole lecture about the kind of ice cubes, has like a plastic to go cup ready. Like I'm I'm thinking this is how I should pick up people from now on for the plastic to go cup. What do you think? Yeah, and I and I, I don't know if the actress is what, Lauren yeah. September? Um I don't know if she practiced it, but she opens the, the, the center console and like pulls out the thing with such this kind of like practice, like rhythm. Yeah. It's really funny. She's like, it's very smooth about it. Yeah. She like doesn't um, even look as I think as she like proffers the bottle the second time. She's like, here you go, darling. I like to think that Lauren September like sat in a car and just practiced that move over and over again yeah, until she perfected yeah. it so good it's really great and and i think you know um this scene with all the with all the former cheerleaders like every actor on this show is like doing their doing it fully you know like everyone's committed everyone has their own little thing without you know sort of overplaying anything and i I just think that it's 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 the sign of of a great cast of actors and, and a good director who knows how to calibrate all that um another thing about this scene that i thought was an a nice little detail was when Camille goes for the second drink, that kind of like woohoo good time thing like kind of dissipates. And Angie like kind of looks at her a little bit askew, even though she offered it. Right. You know, so it's kind of like these girls are, or these women are forever setting up Camille to sort of not disappoint them exactly, but sort of give them a reason to cluck their tongues. And so they, they provide the opportunity for, for Camille well, to do Well, forever that. setting up everyone, you know, like, so like Angie immediately starts talking like venomous shit on all the women that they're about to go see. Right. And like, um, right. and then later when, you know, they're all there and they're crying over beaches and then they like crying over their lives. And Angie says to, I think the character's Gretchen, she's like, um, you can tell us you're among friends. And you're like, no, you're just gathering more ammunition for the next time you take a drive and want to talk like spit shit on someone. Like you, you like you're laying a trap and every single one of these women just like keeps walking into each other and they all certainly talk shit on each other. And it's just like their lives. Um, I love, uh, a few things about like the interior of, of the Lacey home, like Camille walking in and taking it in, you know, like, uh, Angie says they roll up, like imagine the house you could have had if you had stayed here. So like Katie Lacey's house is something to be admired, but Camille sort of looks around and I'm like with her that this is like a boring, yeah, basic suburban rich. You know what I mean? Like the kitchen is just like, here's the double oven. Here's her, like her, her like Pinterest inspired apps that she's put out, you know, like all this sort of stuff is like, isn't this what you're supposed to want? Or isn't this what you should have had as the most beautiful girl in wing gap? But she's like, this is not what I want. Or is it? No, it's not. You know what I mean? Like, Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that I really like is there's this just tiny moment of like, you know, um, Camille and Becca escape. They're sitting outside, uh, Camille's smoking. The other girls come out in this sort of like, how you don't walk away from us. We walk away from you sort of moment. And then Gretchen, like two of the girls, two of the women like sit on the chair and Gretchen sort of like precariously perches herself on the other chair and looks just like, it's so 
awkward and studied and like self-conscious and it's just a tiny silent physical thing that i really enjoyed so yeah yeah there are a lot of good little details like that in in this sequence um it's funny i my brain is fully broken because i've been watching so much love island recently (laughs) Uh and that whole show is basically them just like moving around this porch you know from one spot to another it kind of arbitrary grouping is just having kind of nothing conversations it's mesmerizing um but this made me think of that it was like a very like strong love uh, love island thing where they're like now we're talking outside right. you know for no other reason that like it's somewhere new and also that's where camille is um i like the line that becca has where she says like so, I, I'm not, I can't quote it directly, but something along the lines of, I didn't know how miserable my life was until I, until I tar- started coming to these things. Yeah. Um, I just think that's a pretty funny thing. And again, it's Becca in a very kind and friendly and generous way, kind of telling Camille, like, yeah, you know, like, I, I, I see you got a bad and I sympathize with you, but like also, you know, right. I'm here too. Right. And, um, this, this scene, uh, which I loved so much in the books, which is like these women inviting Camille in and then like turning on her, um, is what I had in mind when in the very first episode, um, I, I, I wanted to, to make sure to point out that like, as soon as Camille gets to town, like the first question she's asked by Vickery's like a uh, secretary or whatever is like, do you have kids? Um, and this, question over and over again of like do you have kids and you're not like you know like even angie in the car i swear angie already knows that camille doesn't have a husband and doesn't have a boyfriend and like asks her again anyway and like the way in which these four women um talk about uh, this is so real like i have a lot of friends who are young moms and they do it in like a less venomous way but there is such a real conflict between women who are mothers and women who aren't and my unified i have a lot of sympathy for both sides of it like i I don't think no one's as like terrible as these women about it but like i think if you're a mother which is so hard because you have like no sleep and your entire life is consumed by this project i think it is both an important and emotionally validating thing to do on its face but also like you need it to be important and emotionally validating or else why are you doing this thing that's so hard and i think that that fuels sometimes fuels this whole like well you're not a full person until you've had a child or you don't know what love is until you've had a child which is like a pretty venomous thing to say to someone but it's something that i've seen mothers say uh quite often and um you know, not always intending to be venomous, but like, it is just this whole, like you, you, you're not really living a full life until you've done this. And I like that Camille sticks up for herself. And of course I love her little snide, like girl power clink of the glass to Becca. It's pretty, it's pretty solid. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get this, this, uh, as we, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, you know, per the email that we got this, this interaction between Kirk and Camille, what did you think of, of this? I thought it was interesting. Um, I guess in a way I didn't quite buy the, like, I snuck back into the house to have this conversation with you right now. Sure. I you know, yeah. like, I was like, there are like maybe easier ways. Like, he knows she's at that bar all the goddamn time. Like, flag her down there. Um, but that said, I think that the nuance between their points of view on the matter, where he's like racked with guilt, he's thought about it, you know, every day since, um, you know, really believes he's done something terrible uh and camille um being 
I, I, I don't know how to put it exactly, but I guess really put off by the fact that he sort of is viewing her as this like victim of something he mm-hmm. did and thus in a way kind of making her thing his part of his narrative. Yeah. You know, he's like sort of like in the way that men do a lot, like taking ownership of this thing um, as a means for, you know, he's begging for her forgiveness or whatever. And she's like, fuck off, dude. Like, I don't care. You know, like, I, I'm fine. It happened. It was whatever it was. It, you know, if I can recall, you couldn't even get hard. So we didn't. So we both got fucked or whatever, you know, like um, she's and I don't think it's all just like an act. I think that she really believes it and feels pretty like accosted by all this kind of you know, retroactive guilt on the part of this boy or this now man. Yeah. And I think we see similar, a similar setup with the Becca conversation later where Becca's like, I saw that you were cutting and like the way in which Camille and, and and it's similar to like whatever tenderness Dick was trying to offer her in the first scene. Like she can't be vulnerable. She can't put herself in a position to be vulnerable. So to accept Kirk's apology is to accept a narrative where she's a victim and she can't do that because any vulnerability from her is like a way in which Adora would find a way to like stab at her. You know what I mean? So she has to like keep these defenses up. So when, uh, you know, she's, she's both telling the truth and lying as, as our listener email said, like sort of both, because when she's like, um, you know, forget about it. I have, we know she hasn't like, we've seen her flash to it. We know she hasn't forgotten about it. Like maybe she's thinking about it more since she's gotten back into town, but like, it's not like she's forgotten about it or that it doesn't matter to her. We know it does. Um, but at the same time, I think you're right in terms of like, she's, convinced herself that she needs to not be have been a victim in that moment and uh she's convinced herself so much that that's a truth for her as well and so she's like fuck you for apologizing to me you know sort of thing yeah and and also like i mean you know i'm i like i don't want to speak for people who have been in these positions and i'm sure there's a whole panoply of reactions and, and to this kind of trauma but like I think also her, her repulsion by, of, of, with this is just like, I don't want to have to consider how you feel about this. Yeah. Like I, I have too much, you know, going on in my own head about it. And like, you're now putting the onus of your, of your guilt on me too. Now, now too, you know, like just, you know, in a way, I think that she's not saying that what happened in the past doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter now what he thinks to her, you know? Yeah. She's like, go, go, you know, go do your thing. Like I'm, I'm good. Even though she's not good. I completely agree. Um, uh, speaking of that bar where she hangs out all the time, um, I sort of, uh, you know, slammed a few scenes together about this, like, Dick and Jackie encounter the bar. That here we get, like, ni- nighttime Jackie, drunk Jackie, a, a different caftan, uh, same great. A real tour de force of, of drunk acting by Elizabeth Perkins. Drunk acting is hard to do well. Uh, very few actors can do it uh, convincingly, and I think she this nailed it. cut, because, like, it's not the first cut, it's the second cut, but this cut back to her where she's, like, in mid-sentence, and she's, like, she's saying the sentence, perky little titty shining in the sun, and sort of, oh my yeah. god, it's, like, the best thing I've ever seen. Um, Something that she said to you, I loved the interview that you did with her, and something that she said to you, I think, was, like, that, you know, what Jean-Marc Vallée will do is film a whole scene, um, but then, like, cut it up, and so, you know, cut to some something in the middle of a scene that they shot, you know, so presumably she had a whole run up of something else to that, but he's like, we're right. going to cut in on perky little titty shining in the sun. And I think it was an yeah. excellent choice. It's so good. So yeah. another evocation of cherries too, yes, in a way. Absolutely. Um, 
but you know, so Dick is like fishing for information and as plastered as Jackie is, she's still like aware and sharp. And she's like, you know, you're, you're, you, you clearly want to know something. What do you want to know? Um, and he asks why Camille was self-harming and she talks about Marion dying, Marion being a sickly child, that there was no autopsy. Um, and, um, and then Dick in exchange tells her about Alice, which Jackie didn't know about. Um, and that's where Jackie says uh, the thesis of the show, which is dead girls everywhere. Uh, what did you think of this, this little exchange? I think it's a marvelous piece of acting on Elizabeth Perkins's part. I'm glad that Jackie is clicking into the story a little bit more. I mean, maybe this was her big episode. I don't know, but like, um, it's, it's interesting to see a little bit more of a pathetic side of Jackie where she's kind of hitting on him and it's not working and she has this sadness about her and, um, and yet still has her faculties, you know, she's like still, um, aware enough to be guarded about information and about, you know, history. And I, I, I think that, um, I think that that's a lot of stuff to play and Perkins while also being drunk, you know, the nuances of being drunk. Uh, I think she does very yeah, well. It's really good. Um, and then we cut back to Becca and Camille and we get the, the secondary source on the name of the episode, which is cherry where Becca talks about. Uh, so like you really liked the scene. It's so funny. I thought this was a little too on, like this is the first time I felt like the words were a little too on the nose. I think Hillary Ward delivered this really well. Uh, the actress who plays Becca, but you know, she talks about, you know, we were shiny and luscious on the inside uh, outside, inside, hard, a hard, dark pit, uh, which just to me felt like a little too, like, let me explain to you how we were cherries. Uh, what did you think? Oh yeah, no, I, I think that's yeah. on the nose for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think in this, that, that in that hog heat, people are, 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 <laughs> you know, prone to a little, little kind of heavy poetry, sure. um, a little, a little purpleness, um, from time to time. And I think that what precedes that sort of metaphorical or allegorical talk, um, is, is interesting. And I just like that they gave Becca a moment, you know, I think that like, I think that that's a credit to the show that they give all these characters little moments and, and, and humanity. All right. And then, um, you know, uh, Camille does, oh, oh, well, we get Adora like asking Alan why he didn't, uh, you know, deliver on her request. And Alan, I mean, stands up to her, but doesn't, and just says, like, you were always better with the girls. Like, that's a little bit of a fuck you. I don't know, these weird moments where, like, like that scene yeah. a couple of episodes ago where Alan, like, comes into Adora's room and, like, takes her. Like, you know, these, like, weird, Alan does have a spine, but then he doesn't, so, I don't know. And I, 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 like, did you see what Alan was reading with a magnifying glass? It looked like he was looking at a dictionary. Like, it was a weird dictionary. For a second, I thought it might be like the Merck manual. I don't know. It was yeah. like, cause it was, gr- it was like a grid. Anyway, Alan, these are high class problems because on this, our screening site, when you, when you pause it, it oh, it's like super blurry because they don't want people taking yeah, screenshots. So I don't, I, you know, if, if you guys are like, it's clear as day that it's this, this is why we're having trouble seeing what it is. If you want to, the price is being <laughs> if fancy. you want to tweet at us or email us and let us know what you think it is, uh, that Alan's reading. But, uh, then we get Camille doing her favorite activity, which is buying vodka. This episode has so much stuff in it. Like it's, it's crazy to me that like Camille goes, and interviews John Keane and then goes to, uh, Katie Lacey's house and then goes to this party. And like, those are all things that happen in the book that I was like, Oh, surely we're cutting some of that because we only have three episodes left. Nope. We're doing it all. Um, 
And there's this, you know, there's this moment where Camille's buying her vodka and, uh, the girls come up and did you ever see the 1980s movie Return to Oz with the Feruza Bulk? Oh, and the, um, what is her name? The witch? Ozma or something? Mombi. Well, Ozma and Mombi. Mombi, yeah. Mombi. Thank you. Mombi. Yeah. No, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's they've creepy. got these creepy uh, wheeler characters. Uh, they're these like, yeah, yeah, these things with like four wheels. I was like, you know, the girls have always been a little menacing to me on their roller skates, but like when they, when they roll up to the thing and they're like rattling the cage on the outside of the window, they're either like wheelers from Return to Oz or they're like vampires who haven't been invited in. You know what I mean? They're just like, or like warriors come out and play. Like there's just something so menacing about these, these youths. Um, yeah. And speaking of good, like, f- drunk, fucked up acting, like, Eliza Scanlon is so good in this stretch of the episode. Yeah. Like, modulating the perfect nuances of, like, her sort of impetuousness, like, her lowered inhibitions while still maintaining her social control, while still following these emotional impulses. Like, it's, it's, it's a really tricky thing to play this extended long nighttime sequence, um, that end, that, you know, brings us to the end of the episode without hitting a false note especially for a young performer and like she just gets it so fluidly that it's it's really incredible she's amazing in this i think she's so good and like this you know we they hop in the car they sort of like uh abduct camille in a way and but she like makes terrible choices all throughout uh takes an oxy from her sister later takes some oxy from her sister this sequence in the book terrified me because like Camille felt so on the verge of like she she's like all these bad decisions and there's also and like thankfully like Eliza talked to me about this in the in the interview we'll we'll uh, get to in a little bit but like in the book reading it I was like I genuinely I was like is Camille gonna have sex with her sister like I felt like such a weirdo Mm -hmm. for thinking that but like that's what I was thinking when I was reading the book I was like Emma and Emma says this in the episode that she doesn't know how to relate to women and all she knows how to do is like control men sexually. And that's the only way she knows how to like relate to people. And so she's kind of trying to do that with Camille is like, she's very sexual with her sister and it's frankly disturbing. And like the scene where she kisses her and gives her the XC is like the most explicit version of that, but it like throughout it's there. And, um, I just, I, I felt validated that it was so heavily there in the episode. Cause I'm like, okay, I wasn't the only one who read the book. and was like, what's happening here. Um, what yeah. did you think of all of this? I mean, it's, you know, the, 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 that sexual danger, that sexual tension that I think is so interestingly mirrored with the earlier scene by the pool. Yeah. Um, where, where Emma is doing some tempting and John is not t- by taking it. And then b- bizarrely her sister sort of is, yeah you know, later in the episode and all that talk of control and whatnot. Um, I think that's all pretty risky, but, you know, but also, you know, we're handled without any sort of leering, you know, sensationalism. Um, I also think just on the technical merits, once again, like it, this is like the best stage party sequence since American Vandal. I was going to bring like, up it, American Vandal. Yeah. Yeah. Like it just has this like ramble to it that is so believable and so familiar to high school parties that I went to and just that they had this kind of messy chaos to them, but nothing was too extraordinary. Nothing was too over the top. You know, it was just like, it was just like sweaty drunk kids just like crashing into each other, you know, and, um, and, and being mean in a way that, 
alcohol allowed them to be and being sexual in a way that alcohol allowed them to be and, um, and other drugs, you know, um, I, I just think it, 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 it was pitched exactly right. I don't know why, like, a few of the boys are wearing ties, but I really like that, no, that aspect too, because it's just sort of like, you know, like, like Ashley coming from cheer practice, like these boys were like at some function where they had to wear ties and now they're at parties, like just being high school animals. Um, the, um, the American Vandal thing you bring up, uh, I, as you know, we did a very important oral history of the Nana's party uh, over on VF.com uh, for uh, American Vandal. And what they said is because of the way they shot that, which was uh, for American Vandal, they shot that party scene like uh, entirely on iPhones. The party had to be going around them at all times. It's not just like you're shooting from one direction and there's nothing behind you. It's like an actual party going. And the same is true, I think... Um, you know, Eliza confirmed that the same is true of like Jean-Marc Vallée. All of his actors have said like, you never know where his camera's pointing. You never know what he's shooting. You never know what he's doing. And so that just means that that party had to just be like going. But Eliza said, but we didn't have any music. <laughs> so we were just like pretending that there was music the whole time, uh, which is uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty yeah. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, we get um, Ashley and John show up. And, um, you know, Camille asks Ashley about the bite in her ear and Ashley's like, uh, you know, really pissed that she's not in the paper again. And then she says, you should ask your mom if you want to know about Natalie. And, uh, and she has this great party chat where she's like, no one reads the paper anywhere anyway. And I was like, that's right, dude. No one reads the paper. These children mm. wouldn't care. <laughs> um, and, you know, <laughs> Joanna, we're supposed to be defending the integrity of print media. Um, but paper is important. <laughs> Well, especially was, magazines, monthly periodicals. Really fair. Um, but the, um, and John and Ashley showed up because Ashley, like, she, she was like, we won't be pariahs or whatever. We won't be outcasts, something like that. Um, but they quickly are sort of jeered out of the party. Uh, then you get the, like, uh, rolling roulette, as they call it, with, with, uh, Camille taking the ecstasy. I like the sweet, like, the, the cut back. We find out that she did take the oxy. Now she's on oxy and, uh, ecstasy. Uh- I kept waiting to hear rolling with my homies because they were basically doing suck and blow. I mean, <laughs> it was very suck and blow. Um, and then speaking of, of, uh, 90s or early aughts teen comedies, we get, uh, the classic 10 things I hate about you. Uh, obviously it's not from that movie, but, uh, we get this musical moment from Emma and her girls of, uh, can't take my eyes off of you, the Frankie Valley song. And, um, Emma has very interesting. <laughs> musical taste for a teen in 2018 her with her tupac and her frankie valley so um you know the girls do their like little routine to this and it's just like a really like that song has very positive associations for me i do think of like heath ledger serenading julia styles and so like it just was more ominous this time than I've ever seen it before. So I don't know. Yeah. And then we get the, the nighttime skate, uh, which Eliza was very graciously talked to me about, uh, the way in which they almost, in my opinion, almost pull off making it look like Amy Adams is skating, but she's definitely not skating. And, um, you know, the skate home and the, there's this great sound cut in this where like the, the Frankie Valley song is still kind of going. Um, and the train sort of honk of the train is to the beat of the song. It's, uh, it's mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, this whole like drug fueled skate home and then their last conversation sort of on the lawn here. Uh, what did you think of, of the night skate and, and like this, this yeah. sisterly 
conversation. I know my role this episode has just been like, gee, isn't this show good? But like, it, gee, isn't this show yeah. good? Like, this whole sequence, like, not that I have ever done this, but I would imagine is like exactly what the end, like this, the, almost the end of that, like, fucked up night feels like. Like, the rhythms of it, the kind of like hazy, like, where are we? What are we doing? Oh, right. We're the, you know, like, like, there not being a sense of border to your world and the, in your body even. And, um, and time feels sort of malleable. It's, it's, it's very, I think, accurate to, um, one of those, one of the good nights, you know, when you've, when you've indulged. Um, and, uh, and cause it's really not even clear in a way, like, obviously the stuff about controlling boys is, is stated, you know, matter of factly, uh, by Emma, but like every other sort of emotion and sort of, spoken or unspoken sentiment kind of tumbling between them until the end of the episode. It's kind of vaguely, you're not really sure what it's about. They're just kind of like feeling each other. Like they're just like vibing together. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe for the first genuine time, even though they're on drugs. Um, and then the episode just kind of ends, you know, like it's, it's pretty interesting. Oh, well, there's another detail, obviously separate of them, but like, I don't know. I just love the kind of energy this, this episode goes. Yeah. And maybe like, this is what, I mean, you know, Camille is forever self-medicating with vodka and something like that, but like the ecstasy really breaks down these barriers that she's holding up, uh, for Kirk, for Dick, for Becca, like in this episode, like Emma gets through because of the drugs, I would say. That's like what it took to get Camille to drop her guard. Um, and yeah, this is like overwrought, but like, it's kind of almost like the town possessed them. Like they're kind of like in this like crucible fit. You know, yeah. uh, this witchy, this witchy kind of ecstasy. Yeah. Um, I mean, cause that's the name of the drug, but like, you know what I mean? Like a religious ecstasy or something, an old timey ecstasy. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's creepy, but it's also like kind of sweet in a way. What? Yeah. Um, which is, and it's just so seductive for Camille to like have a sister figure again when, when like the loss of Marion, the loss of like her one ally in that house is like her, the, the most painful origin story for her. And so to have this, yeah. this girl, this other girl offer to fill that role for her is so seductive to her. And like the way in which she like twirls her around and sees her and sees Marion and sees the other dead girls, um, it, you know, and then, and then you get this like them sneaking into the house. I love, I love the moment where they like go over the, like I didn't get it the first time where they were going over the railing, but it was so they wouldn't have to like creep past Adora's door, which is like so obviously like an old Camille trick that she's teaching her sister. And that's such like a sister thing to do. Yeah. Um, I totally. love it. And- they're not very subtle about it. They're pretty loud, but still, yeah, it's funny I mean, that they try. yeah, they try. Adora definitely knows they're there. Adora probably knows they're there because she heard them, but also because like Vickery spots them skating down the street and Vickery is just fucking tattletale. So I'm sure he called her and was like, your girls are skating home, like drunk yeah. and high. Um, we should also mention, um, that according to Vickery, uh, you know, someone on the hog farm, a Mexican on the hog farm, um, ID John Keen as the person who put the, um, the bike in the muck. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that we keep hearing about these Mexicans, but I don't think we've ever seen one. Maybe, maybe in a scene on the, farm? on the farm. Maybe, maybe one like, told like John Keen to go home, but yeah, I don't, yeah. But like beyond that, it's the, like, it's, I think, I, I think that's very it's deliberate. It's an other racial aspect of the show, right? This like other yeah, Mexican, big one, vague threat. Um, 
and a big a big aspect of like po- po- the politics of our actual real country you know a thousand percent. Um, yeah, absolutely in rural rural communities um and then uh, the last thing we should mention is that like uh for the first time i would say like the ghosts that um that uh, you know camille has been seeing like really start interacting back with her. And so the ghost of Marion is sort of holding her hand as she's passed out in bed with Emma and, and Marion says, it's not safe for you here, uh, which is very chilling. And then the episode ends. Did it kind of look like the ghost of Marion didn't have any teeth? Oh, uh, I should rewatch. I didn't notice it. I will say that like, I might, it might just been the, the light, but I was like, oh, I maybe. will say that like Marion, um, without like is harder to recognize without her pigtails. I don't know. Like there's yeah. different stages of Marion. I think, I don't know. I, but like the way in which she was like watching them, like, I really like the, the, the first shot of her watching them from below in the staircase. I really love because it was like, it felt like a very sad and lonely, like, that used yeah. to be my thing that I did with my sister, like sad, lonely ghost thing. But then like the warning ghost that she becomes, I don't know. It's fascinating. And like, it's, it's just, it's spooky and supernatural in a way that the book never quite becomes. And, um, I know we've talked so much about like the great work that the show has done to be like subjectively in Camille's head, but I always thought that the ghosts would just sort of stay there as like things that she's thinking about. And so for this ghost to reach out and take her hand and tell her it's not safe for her is, uh, you know, is an interesting new wrinkle. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Our- Even if it means that Camille was already asleep. Right. And sure, dreaming sure, again, sure. but like, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's a really striking. And then the, and the episode just cuts right yeah. out. All right. Well, yeah, that's the end of the episode proper, but we are going to, before we hit our spoiler section, we are going to go to our interview with Eliza Scanlon. Um, like I said elsewhere, just because she has an Australian accent does not mean this is not the real Emma because, uh, the actress is Australian. So here she is the great Eliza Scanlon. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello. Hi. Um, I just wanted to let you know, I don't know if, if this has sort of made it uh, into your uh, view at all, but uh, a bunch of people that I know who are watching the show have made like a drinking game out of every time that Emma says, shut up, Jodes, or shut the fuck up, Jodes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I haven't heard of that, but I want to play it. Right? It's become one of my favorite elements of everything. So take yeah. a drink every time. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to say every time Camille drinks. Oh, no. Then you die. Then you're dead. So yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> I, want, I, I, I love your performance so much on the show. I want to like just start by asking you about the duality of the roles you have to play i read somewhere that you modulated your voice to be a little different depending whether you're playing like good girl amma or bad girl amma i was wondering if you could talk about that yeah i'm well i worked with a dialect coach uh a few months earlier before we started shooting and um she actually came on as the dialect coach for the whole cast um and we had so much fun kind of creating the voices together and I think naturally when when I was playing the more goody-goody side of Emma, I felt like the pitch of my voice changed a little bit. It, it became a little bit higher, and so we kind of attached that to uh, that side of her character, and that became the way I uh, kind of navigated uh, that side. And then for the more rebellious side, it was a bit of a lower, more... Um, I guess a bit more sexualized and um, deep set. And uh, I think that added to this kind of intensity about Anna when, when she's out with her friends and she, she's being a bit rebellious and, and doing things that she probably shouldn't be doing. Um, there's this kind of uh, dangerous quality about the voice, which helped me really get into the, into the space Um but yeah, I, I never thought that it would help me so much. Um, but yeah, that was that was one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, creating uh, for Anna because I guess so much of it is is already there because it's a book and um, yeah, that was really cool uh, to have agency over over that part of the character. When uh, when I was talking to Gillian a couple weeks ago, she she reminded me of this part from the book where uh, that we haven't gotten to yet, where Emma talks about uh, Persephone, this idea of like um, a mythological figure that splits time between the underworld and you know at at home with her mother. Mm. I was wondering uh, then that, that when she reminded me of that, then I started noticing all the red lighting that's on Emma, like specifically in this episode in the party scene. There's all this red lighting on her when she's sort of in her as you say like rebellious persona was that yeah an intentional choice that you remember or is that a coincidence um no i i never even saw it in that way but i guess that's the cool thing when you do look back on it um you kind of notice things that you never really expected and john mark has put so much thought and and detail into uh the show and that kind of awareness that Anna has of those historical figures I found was really interesting. It's not, and it makes me wonder whether Anna's decision to have this dual personality is somewhat influenced by, I don't know, her, her interest in historical figures. It's not, it's not something that's just a result of her being a, an immature kind of teenager. It's, it's kind of calculated and she sees this uh, strength and nobility and, in being able to kind of oscillate between the two. And I guess she saw that in Persephone and maybe wanted to kind of translate it into her own life. And, um, but yeah, that, that party scene, I'm, I'm excited for everyone to, 
to watch it because that's one of my favorite episodes. Um, but yeah, I never, I never even thought about that. That's really cool. Well, I, I was really looking forward to the party scene as well because it was actually in all the murder and all the like everything that happens in the book, that party scene, I think actually stressed me out the most because you're just watching <laughs> Camille make these terrible decisions and you're so worried for her. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> I know that John Mark has this, um, like roving camera thing he does where he just sort of like has to have the action going around all the time and you never know where the camera's pointing. So did you guys just have to have like a full fledged party going like 360 around the camera at all time as you filmed this particular episode? Yeah, basically, but it was like a, it was a party with no music because as you know, (laughs) whenever you shoot like party scenes or um, scenes with music, they never actually have it. So we were all dancing to, uh, to nothing, basically. So that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he there was a lot of stuff that ended up being cut out um, of the of the final cut. Uh, Jean Marc, he made uh, April Violet, who played uh, Kelsey and Jodes, and I. Uh, he made us learn this dance called the Chicken Dance, and I can't remember where it came from, but he he saw it somewhere on YouTube, and I think it was a it must have been a dance that originated from the South in like the fifties. Um, but it was this, uh, it's kind of reminds me of the nutbush a little bit. Um, and he made us do the whole thing. And <laughs> it was, yeah, that was a real, it was so strange, but I loved it. And it was, yeah, it was, we did, we did a lot for that, for that um, party scene, but, uh, but you know, a lot of it got cut out, but it did have this party feel to it doing it. Um, because, yeah, you had to be in it the whole time. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that there is a lot of advantages to the way that Jean-Marc filmed because you kind of have to be in it. Otherwise, people smell bullshit straight away. So he, he, has, a, he has a very good bullshit radar, which I love. <laughs> well, in a recent interview, he mentioned that he considers Camille and Alan and Emma to be like the three DJs of the series that Emma is one of the people that provides <laughs> the music. And in this episode, you know, like you got to do your, your Tupac moment earlier, which was great. But in this episode, you've got the, this great can't take my eyes off of you sort of sequence. Yeah. Uh, what was it like filming that? And, and like, what do you think about the music that Emma, you know, a teenager in 2018 is interested in like this older music? What do you think that means? Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's the, one of the really exciting things about working with Jean-Marc is that he's always got so many ideas about the music and, and, and for him, music is such a big part of, um, the atmosphere of the show. And I remember when he was telling me that he wanted me to learn that, the lyrics to that song, Can't Take My Eyes Off You, um, he said, we want to, he said, we want to make it a... we want to take this song and make it unique for our our TV show because, you know, it's been in so many films like 10 Things I Hate About You and um, lots of other movies. So we were, he kind of wanted to take it for his own and, and make it new and fresh. And um, <laughs> it was really funny. Um, but, yeah, I, I think having a playlist or some kind of um, understanding of the music that characters listen to um, – is really helpful. Uh, I found that before I was going into scenes, I listened to some of the music that Jean-Marc had recommended to me. And it was a really interesting way of 
kind of getting into the world of the character. Um, I think music has an incredible, um, just natural ability to do that and to, to bring you into a certain world. Um, and yeah, I think I, I love how John Mark is just so open to every type of genre. Uh, and yeah, I think that, that last scene, the scene from last week, uh, with Tupac was, was really cool. And, um, I love that Anna is kind of, well, like Jean-Marc, open to different genres of music. And I think it adds a, another layer to the, to the show for sure. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to hear what other music he's put in it. <laughs> are, are there any songs that you, uh, remember him recommending to you as like Emma songs that maybe didn't make it into the, the show itself? Um, he did. I remember him recommending some D12. <laughs> um, I'm not complaining about it. I like D12. <laughs> um, what else did he recommend? Um, lots of Led Zeppelin. Right. Which ended up going in the, in, in the show. Um, but yeah, he never, he never got around to giving me the playlist. He always said it every, every day of that, he was like, I'm going to get it to you. I'm going to get it to you live. But he never did. I'm still waiting. <laughs> I I think one of the reasons that the party scene stressed me out so much in the book is there's this um, unsettling sort of sexual connection between Emma and Camille that I think bears out, you know, it made me feel like less of a weirdo that that was my interpretation when I saw the episode because I'm like, oh, no, that's in the episode too. Okay, great. Um, mm, but, yeah. but, but like Emma talks so much in this episode, like, I don't know, both you see it in the pool scene with John Keen and both she, and she talks about it, about she knows how to interact with men because that's about sexual control and she doesn't know how to interact with women. She feels like they hate her. She doesn't know how to connect with them. Do you feel like mm. she's a, approaching Camille like trying to use that sexual control that she knows that she's comfortable with like with her to connect with her sister or or what do you feel like is going on with Emma uh, trying to connect with Camille in this scene um it's it's really interesting I think that uh growing up the way that she has in some ways she has a, a very warped sense of of what love is and and what care is, and I, I think somewhere in this episode, well, somewhere in this kind of um, drug trip sort of thing, she's she's kind of mistaken a platonic or sisterly love for a more uh, sexual kind of approach to it, and I, I think she's a little confused and. Like so many other, so many teenagers, I think you are you experience things for the first time, and it's all very confusing. And you're kind of trying to discern. Um, well, you're trying to figure out how to deal with these emotions, and I think part of that is trying to discern between this kind of sexual attraction or is it a platonic attraction? And I think combined with the drugs, she's probably a little confused and, and I, I think for Emma, yeah, like you said, it, it's, it's so much about control and, um, she always needs to be in control uh, to, to be sure of herself. And in this circumstance, I think it's, she's, uh, sexually fueled and, 
Um, she wants to have a good time and, and she'll do whatever it takes. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic and it, 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 you see that definitely unfold um, in this episode. I'm I'm completely obsessed with the skating on this show, um, which, you know, was not <laughs> in the book, something Jean-Marc Vallée decided to add to the show. Uh, were you already a profession skater or did you like curse Jean-Marc Vallée and be like, why did you make me do this on top of everything else for the show? <laughs> I had never roller skated before in my life. No. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yep. Yeah. Um, so I was already so stressed out about the role, uh, as it was. And then he told us that we, we needed to roller skate. And the, uh, video that he sent us for a reference was, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's Chet Faker, his music video for his song Gold. Uh, it features three roller skaters who are professional roller skaters, mind you, <laughs> roller skating down this freeway this empty freeway and doing the craziest tricks i think i've ever seen and they look so beautiful and sexy and just gorgeous roller skating and that was his reference for us and i don't think he realized how scary it felt to learn how to roller skate after watching that video because (laughs) i i had this expectation that he wanted us to be as good as as good as those girls who have I mean, have been probably roller skating their whole life. Um, so yeah, that that really got me into order, and I was roller skating every day up until the uh, shoot. And we had a um, we had a roller skating coach who we were working with uh, most days to kind of keep us in order. And yeah, I mean, I, I like roller skating now, but I sure as hell didn't like it in the beginning. I was really <laughs> not good at it (laughs) did you get like a lot of bruises a lot of were there a lot of falls like as you were beginning yeah yeah we had a we had to wear knee pads and and wrist pads and because we were in the sun so much I got really funny looking tans (laughs) this episode has this amazing night skate with like this drug trance night skate with you and Amy um I don't think Amy is skating in this it looks like she is maybe being sort of like pulled on something well, they actually used the Patriot cart to where the whole um, crew would sit on and shoot the, the scene. And they somehow created this platform uh, that sat on the back of the the cart, uh, which Amy sat on and she was strapped into it and she was kind of harnessed into it. And um, so it looks like she was skating when they moved, started moving the cart and she kind of had to sway as if she was skating. But I was definitely roller skating in the background. <laughs> that was definitely real. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I had to skate pretty fast and the ground was really, um, yeah, it wasn't laid out very well and there were a lot of cracks. So half the time I was trying not to die. Um, and it was probably like one in the morning, two in the morning. And uh, I think by the end of it, yeah, it was, that day that I had a really big fall on the roller skates because I was just so tired. I think I had the flu and that kind of, I fell and that sort of ended our shoot because I was just so tired. Um, But yeah, I guess that's movie magic for you. You're like, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. Like Emma, Emma out, Emma down. All right. Um, Yeah. uh... (laughs) (laughs) There's, um, 
one thing I think is so interesting and maybe like a challenge for you as an actress is the series is so firmly inside Camille's head. This is Camille's like subjective point of view. And like, as she's trying to figure out who Emma is, it's important then that Emma is like kind of mysterious to us. So when we get these shots of like, I'm thinking specifically of like Emma going to the hog farm and looking at the pigs where we're trying to figure out what Emma is thinking. And, and maybe we as the audience are not exactly supposed to know, like, is that stuff mm. laid out for you in the script? Is that something that you and John Mark talk about or how much of like Emma's interior workings, um, are you filling in? Are you discussing with Jean-Marc? Are you reading out of the script? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I do see that in, yeah, the way it's been filmed. And even in the script, she was written as, as an enigma, um, especially in the, the earlier episodes. And um, it was really up to me to kind of fill in the blanks and, um, sort of figure out a, a motive to why she's doing all the things that she's doing, um, which was really hard. I mean, it took me a, a, a long while to kind of get in inside Emma's head because she's just so different to me. And um, I think a lot of the things that she does is is hard to kind of justify or explain. Um and because she's so, I guess, this duality about her makes her it really difficult to kind of pinpoint um, a constant about her um, because I don't think she really has a constant. I think her constant is being unreliable. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, I think so much of that for me was about embracing her multiple truths and I sort of felt that she was constantly shifting between different parts of her personality and none of them were false, but they all had a different truth to them. And she uh, kind of, she lent towards different parts of her personality for specific people. Um, and I think that's something we all do, but I think Emma has gotten particularly and exceptionally good at that because of just the nature of her family, I think, and um, just the way she has been brought up. Um, but, yeah, I think for Jean-Marc as a director, it's always about authenticity and following instinct, and he has such a deep respect for actors and, and what we do that he doesn't like to interfere too much into, into their process. Um, and yeah, I think for him, it's just about bringing actors outside of their comfort zone and, and fully embracing the unpredictable, unpredictable nature of the way he shoots. Um, so no, I don't, I didn't really talk to, to Jean-Marc too much about the character. I think Amy and I talked a lot about our relationship and, and what that meant to um, Camille and Amar. And, um, yeah, I think the most helpful conversations I, I had was was with the cast um, because in the end we all, we are the ones that really understand our own characters because we're, we're playing them. Um, so it was really <laughs> nice to kind of um, discuss that with with uh, Patricia and, um, and Amy. And I think that's 
where I got most of my inspiration and, and also just confidence in, in playing Ammer and, and believing that I guess the way I was playing it was communicating and, um, and was right. And, um, because yeah, I did have a lot of doubts and, uh, well, just doubt because it, it's a book and, and you want to do the role justice. And, um, yeah, I mean, Amos definitely probably the hardest character I've ever played. Two of my favorite shots of you that were used in a lot of the promotion are from this episode. And, uh, the first I want to talk about is this like bird of prey sort of move dance move that you do on the roller skate. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> can you talk about like what, what you were doing in that moment that resulted in that image that like, I think is my favorite image from the trailer and the episode itself. That is so funny um, because that was just a stupid thing I did and Jean-Marc happened to be looking and he was like, do it again. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> so I had to do this. The weird, like, we made up this whole dance before um, he kind of started rolling the camera and I had to start on my on my toe stops of the roller skates and do this weird little dance on my toe stops and then start skating and then do the... I don't know what what do you even call it? It's like a a bat type of dance move. Um, but yeah, he he saw me do it as I was kind of just mucking around in between takes, and um, he just made me do it again and again. And um, yeah, I think it was in the end. I really enjoyed roller skating because it was just a, a place where I could be creative and. And no one could really tell me how to roller skate because no one else could roller skate. So <laughs> I was just sort of making it up. You're like, no, this is how it's yeah. done. I, I know. I know all about it. Um, yeah. I'm a professional <laughs> roller skater now. <laughs> the other shot is this uh, great one of you submerging into the pool, like submerging your sort of your face into the pool. Um, that, you know, that I think is supposed to be an intentional reflection of this shot we get of young Camille in the very first episode. Um, but it's just like mm-hmm. a, a haunting image nonetheless. Like, can you talk about the setup of that shot and, you know, whether that felt like a big deal at the time? or Yeah. Something? Yeah. Oh no, that was, that was a big deal because um, my hair, it was, you know, it could only be wet once. Um, so yeah, that was a one shot thing. And I remember him telling me before we did it that, he asked if I'd ever seen Apocalypse Now and I said, yes, yes. And he, so he wanted to recreate that shot. It's that really famous shot where one of the soldiers, he, he, he comes out of the water and his face is covered with mud. I guess he wanted to do that, but reverse. Um, and yeah, so that was a, a one shot thing. And it's just those little things that Jean-Marc thinks of. He gets these creative impulses that, usually end up um, going in the final cut. And I mean, the Tupac's Dear Mama scene, that was, uh, you know, that was an impulse idea as well. That was not in the script at all. Um, So, yeah, it's just, it's really cool to see um, how, I guess, his thoughts and his inspirations um, so beautifully kind of, translate into the script and to and into the development of the characters and he just has, has such as this natural impulse and um i guess understanding of the characters and and how they're sort 
portrayed on screen. And, um, yeah, it's really cool. I think this show has so many unique qualities about it, and I think that's because of John marks just total dedication to the characters and, and to the craft. Thank you again so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You have a great day. All right. So, so having heard Eliza uh, Scanlon admit that she did not know how to roller skate uh, before she got the job, I hope that you all will know that you too can be as proficient as she is on the roller skates if you put your mind mm-hmm. to it. Uh, so I expect Richard for you to be skating in no time. Um, but yeah, so that's that's all we're going to do in the non-spoiler section. We want to do switch to the spoiler section now. Before we get there, though, like Richard, where can people find your work on the internet? Uh, they can find my work on the internet at vf.com. They can find me in a backyard pool having a weird charge conversation with a shirtless teenage boy. That's what I've been doing all summer, <laughs> and it's summer until September 21st. Joanna, where are you? Uh, you can find me snacking on Ashley's other ear. Uh, that's creepy. Uh, or uh, <laughs> at Joe wrote this or on vanityfair.com. And uh, now we are going to queue up the hog noises and the Tupac and go into the spoiler section. So what did you want to say, Richard, about uh, what spoilery thing did you want to say about uh, cherries and um, spoilers? Um, so cherry pits when crushed up in actually a pretty small amount, uh, and ingested, it's, it, it, when you crush the cherry pits, it creates cyanide, uh-huh. uh, and you can kill someone by eating, but you, or, you, or yourself by eating just like three crushed cherry pits. Um, and so you think about what, um, what, uh, Adora, Adora has been doing to her children, yeah. you know, in terms of poisoning them. And then that great look on Elizabeth Perkins's face when, she asks how Alice died and uh, Dick says she drank poison and her face just goes like white. Wow. I hadn't even thought about she that. Knows. Yeah. I think that line was, I think that line was definitely there for a reason. And I definitely think that Perkins's reaction was there oh, for wow. a reason. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought, because like when he said poison, I'm like, yeah, you know, like Windex. And I hadn't even thought about like that. Uh, she would, what she that would, would take mean. it in this other context. Wow. And, 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 and what, you know, and, and it almost like Jackie thinking like, oh my God, this girl is cursed. Like Camille is cursed to be surrounded, not just by dead girls, but by poisoned yeah. girls. Um, so if you're joining us in the spoiler section, but have not read the book, uh, we will just remind you that Adora like killed Marion, uh, you know, by poisoning her, uh, because of this, um, Munchausen by proxy sort of condition that she has. Uh, this is why I like talk of how did Marion die? Was there an autopsy, et cetera, et cetera. And then the ominous sort of like, I think, you know, we are in the, you know, next week is the penultimate episode. So we are actually, of course, right on schedule for the, the suspicion to shift pre- pretty hard to Adora. So, because that's what the book does. The, sh- the suspicion shifts to Adora before we finally land on, you're in the spoiler section for a reason, right? Uh, Emma as the killer. And so like, um, Adora as the, like, I mean, she did kill Marion, but like Adora, all the murders being pinned on Adora, that is sort of pushed by, um, Ashley saying, ask your mother about Natalie sort of thing. And and then my guess is that like, it will be uh, determined that Adora is responsible for dumping the bike in the muck. 
And my guess, that's not a book thing, but my guess is that she maybe she knows that Emma did it. And so she's covering for Emma and dumped the bike there for that reason. You know what I mean? Like there's a, right. or Emma yeah, yeah. dumped it there. I don't know. Or, and so then maybe Adora like paid a Mexican <laughs> to say, uh, paid a Mexican, uh, to say that John did it. You know what I mean? Like whoever, whoever's identifying John as having done it is wrong because John didn't do it. So, um, I don't know. How did that bike get there? Did Adora put it there? Did Emma put it there? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other things I want to say is I was wondering how they were, because they've made, um, Dick so likable, so much more likable, I will say, than he is in the books. I was wondering how we were going to get to the part where, like, um, Adora has sex with him, or uh, Camila has sex with him, then she has sex with John Nash and he finds out, and then he, like, sort of spurns her and says shitty things about her and, like, her cutting and stuff like that. And I was like, how are we going to get there from Chris Messina <laughs> in, like, episode right. six? And I think this stuff about Dick uh, investigating her, which I suspect she's going to find out, like, she's going to find out that he was investigating her, and that is going to drive her away from him and maybe towards John Keane. Like, I could see that that yeah. addition to the narrative making her move there make more sense. Um Rather than just like an impulsive yeah. thing that she does, so. And I like how they further with with getting Curry's wife on the mm-hmm. phone. I like how they further set the table for at the very end for her kind of like getting taken in by them. Yeah, and this um this thing of of Emma saying like uh, I want to move with you to St. Louis like that's something that Emma does in the book as she goes with Camille back home. Uh, so, you know, that, that seems to be like something that they're headed towards. Um, and there, was there anything else that we felt like was leading towards something? No, I was just hung up on those cherry Yeah, that's, that's, I hadn't even thought about that. That was really striking. Um, but yeah, I think, I think they're, you know, they're, they're more on track. You know, um, Jackie saying to Dick, uh, you're getting warmer detective, meaning like, please keep asking questions about Adora, right? Like that's, it's so interesting. Like that, um, Adora, like that Jackie knows about Adora and is so protective of Camille, but is still unwilling to out Adora. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that there's, there is a, a limit to her, um, protectiveness. So, um, yeah, so there we are. I think that's it, right? Did we do it? Yeah. We did mm-hmm. it. All right. Well, um, we'll be, at, be back next week with the penultimate episode. This is the last screener we have for now, so we'll see like what will happen with the finale. But um, episode seven, we'll be back in your feeds next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 